The hymns we sing in the morning, the songs we sing are a really significant part of our worship. And I wanted to call your attention to one we sang this morning. It was uh, hymn number 401, Open My Eyes That I May See. And it really walks in parallel with the scriptures that we are going to be looking at this morning. And I'm sure Daniel had kind of done some research on that and prepared that. Uh, Verse 2 really caught my eyes. It says, Open my ears that I may hear voices of truth. Thou sendest clear. And while the scriptures fall on my ear, everything false will disappear. And we pray that as we search the scriptures in the morning, on these Sunday mornings, and we come to worship God, that that will be part of what happens in us. But we need to be diligent, all of us. Uh, Paul said to the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, he said, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, because they received the message with great eagerness, but examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul had said was true. And that's a pretty, pretty shocking statement if you look at the context, because who was coming and speaking to the Bereans? It was Paul himself. And it said they would receive what he said with great eagerness, but then they would examine what Paul himself said to make sure that what he was saying was biblically accurate, that it was scripturally true. And so when you come, please, I'm I'm urging you, encouraging you, don't come, sing a few songs absentmindedly, and then kind of chill out for 40 minutes, 50 minutes, or, or longer sometimes, I know. Be diligent. Help us as the body of Christ to grow in Christ. And we're going to see this morning in these scriptures, there are many, many risks out there, many, many landmines that the enemy sets to thwart the church, to damage the church, to dishonor God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. For without them we have no We have no foundation, Lord. We don't have anything to hold fast to and to know to be absolutely true. It would be all a matter of who is the most persuasive or or who is the most powerful or, or whatever it might be to influence it. But we don't have to do that, Lord. We we know that small, obscure men and men with huge platforms, all of us have the scriptures to preach from. And that every man and woman that you have called into your kingdom has the word of God to base their lives on. Lord, please teach us this morning. Please work through me, Father, through your Holy Spirit. And please work in spite of me where my weaknesses are. And I pray that you would speak and and be absolutely clear as this hymn was written. That you would be clear to us and you would help us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week when we began, there were three goals that I wanted to try to accomplish as we looked at verses 5 through 16. And one of them was to see the need for elders. Secondly was to see the type of men that elders were being called to be, the kind of men that they were to be. And thirdly was to see the importance of praying for elders. Um, admittedly, last week was the strong focus on what kind of men should be elders. What, were their, what was their character to be? What were their skills to be in the Word? This morning, 
we are going to look at a very strong emphasis from Paul on why it is necessary that you have men with that type of spiritual character and also a grasp of the word. Why it is so essential. There is a war at hand and, and we must be conscious of that and we must be in the word of God and we must be in prayer because there is so much at stake. The reason that Paul begins with here in verse 10 is it says, For there are rebels everywhere. Essentially is what he's saying. It says, For there are many insubordinate. Insubordinate is translated in some of your scriptures as rebellious or unruly. And as we go through this morning, I will often call them rebels because I want to emphasize the character of these people that Paul is talking about. That first word, the very first word in the verse 10 is for. This means the reason. Here is the reason for what we read about in verses 5 through 9. So let's take a quick look this morning at Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. And then we will walk right into what we're going to be looking at. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete. That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable. A lover of what is good. Sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Paul recognized when he wrote to Timothy in Ephesus that Timothy faced the challenge of false teachers as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 we read, Verse 3, as I, Paul, urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some, that certain persons, certain men, that they teach no other doctrine. So Paul recognized that Timothy had some opposition. But see the difference this morning? But for Titus on the island of Crete, the size and the intensity of the enemy has greatly increased. In Crete there are many. And the word here means largely. It means much. In fact, it can sometimes be translated to be most. Most of the population of Crete are insubordinate. They are rebels. They are unruly. Another way is to say they are unsubdued. They revel in rebellion and independence. You know what it's like. Nobody tells them what to do. Even their own wise men describe them as liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Lazy gluttons. And we'll get into that deeper in a few minutes. But in verse 9, Paul declares that the elders must be men skilled and committed with the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God holding fast 
the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Those who contradict. The insubordinate rebels of verse 10 are those who contradict mentioned in verse 9. They are enemies of Titus. They are enemies of the gospel. More accurately, they are enemies of Christ. Titus, you have your hands full and this will be a war. And here is why those rebels are so dangerous. Verse 10 says, These rebels are idle talkers. Their teachings and their words have no benefit. They are hollow. They are shallow. They are like sometimes we say they are just blowing smoke. There's no substance to what they say. They're speaking of the latest theological trends, current events, new ideas. There is no substance there. And secondly, they are deceivers. And this is an interesting word. It's not simply that they lie, but that word literally means to mislead the mind. They weave together bits of truth mixed with lies to mislead the minds of people, to trust in them. They are what we might call master manipulators. In Ephesus, Timothy had to deal with such opponents as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and verse 9, it says, Some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, empty talk. And they're knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. It's the same kind of battle in much ways that Titus is facing, although Titus is much, much, much increased. Especially disappointing, Paul says, is that these folks are from the circumcision. The majority and the most destructive of these unruly rebels are those who are of the circumcision. Now what does that mean, those of the circumcision? They are likely leaders that taught a form of the gospel depending on faith in Jesus Christ, but it also included the necessity of Jewish signs such as circumcision, certain dietary laws. You must eat this and don't eat that in order to be pure before God. You must celebrate these feasts and these days in order to truly know this God whom Jesus has brought you to. Now this addition, this collusion of, of truth and, and, and idolatry and tradition and what was brought over from, from Judaism, all of that's no surprise to Paul. Detractors of the true gospel were enemies of his almost everywhere that he preached. Oftentimes Paul would arrive in a city and he'd preach and teach there and many people would come and follow Jesus Christ. After a short time, the old guard of the circumcision would hear about this. They'd arrive on the city where Paul was. They'd stir up the people and they'd even oftentimes try to kill Paul. Acts chapter 9, in Damascus, it reads, Paul, or excuse me, but Saul the same as Paul, increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. We go to Antioch in Pisidia in Acts chapter 13. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, 
persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. We move a little further in that chapter. It says, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. Then we move on to the city of Lystra in Acts chapter 14. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. That would have been Paul and Barnabas. Because they had healed a man. And the people there were just obsessed with who these guys must be. They must be gods from heaven brought down. And they began to try to worship them. And Paul and Barnabas turned this around. But with all that popularity, verse 19 reads, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. And dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Quite a fickle group there. One point they're trying to sacrifice to him. The next time they try to kill him. They try to execute him by stoning. This is Paul. This is is why many of us love Paul. However, and get the picture. He's outside of the city wall. He's laying there by all appearances dead. When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. He could not be thwarted. You could essentially kill him and throw him out of the city. And he would get up and he would walk back in. What a man. But that's the kind of opposition Paul faced everywhere he went. And this is the kind of opposition Titus is facing. Titus is told now at this point to shut down the weapons of these rebels. Their smoke bombs of idle talk and their explosive grenades of deception have one launching system. Verse 11 tells us what that is. The rebel's weapon is his mouth. The rebel's weapon. You must stop their mouths. They must be silenced. Now to stop the mouth literally means to muzzle. Like when you put a muzzle on a dog. And when you put a muzzle on a dog's mouth, you take away his ability to bite. Dogs usually hate being muzzled. I don't know if you've ever had, had to do that with your dog. They cannot stand it. But it does eliminate the danger of them biting another dog or, or perhaps another person. So when you hear that command, stop their mouths, Titus, what's, what's the question that comes to your mouth, to your mind? How are we going to do this? How do you stop the mouths of these guys? Well, in some cases, God may do it directly or indirectly without little involvement from the church. That has happened. But Paul is telling Titus here, you have to do something about these outspoken rebels. Now in this letter... He doesn't spell out exactly how to do that. It can include things such as remove them from their platform. Rebels such as this, insubordinates, should not be 
small group leaders, preachers, elders, teachers, deacons, those leading others and having an opportunity to have influence. Secondly, you can refute their empty talk and their deception through truth from the scriptures. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, that's what Paul is saying your elders must be able to do. By sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. A third way that's mentioned in scripture is that you can refute their empty talk and deception by living a godly life. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 16 says, Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. They can say all they want, but it is obvious by the way that you live that you are a follower of Christ. And what they're saying is false, and what you're saying is proving to be true. And a fourth way that, that must be done sometimes is that they must be removed from the church. Romans 16 verse 17, Paul wrote, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them, avoid them. Why is it so important, though? Why is it so important that they be silenced? And, and I imagine if you sat there, you could think of many reasons why worthless talk and mind manipulators should not have influence. But Paul gives us one specific reason here. He has seen this and is seeing at this very time a specific impact that rebels are having on the church. And what is it? It says they subvert whole families. That means to upset or disrupt. And, and I just want to take a, a quick insert into, into the message here. Sometimes we can look at this and we can think, well, that was in history. That, that was 2,000 years ago. Or perhaps maybe that's happening in, in some other churches that we know of that have great struggles. Maybe they're, they're loose with some of their doctrine and so that happens, we may think. Or, or they're prone to this kind of a, a fault or a weakness. But brothers and sisters, be attentive to what the Word is saying this morning because this is a challenge for us right here. And in every church that I have known of, this happens. It, it happened at a, a church just a few miles down the road where not too long ago one of the influential teachers began to teach in opposition to the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. What that means is that Christ paid the debt that we owed as the wrath of God was poured out on Him. That Christ took our place. And that caused great dissension within that church. And there was much division. And it would have been at a church that you would not have suspected such a thing. Whole households were subverted. What that means is they turned families away from the church and its vital fellowship of believers. And ultimately they point them down a path leading to broken relationships everywhere. And how do they do such damage? They do it by means of subversion. And Paul then says they're teaching things which they ought not. Verse 14 tells us what some of that is. It says... The rebels focus on Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. In Ephesus, Timothy's op opponents were giving heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now that may not be the battleground which we have to wage here. It may be something quite differently. 
Several years ago, our church experienced a very similar trial. A man who was a gifted preacher, very gifted, very winsome with people, and he was ordained as one of our elders. After several months of leading and preaching, he became, became very divisive and demanding toward people within the assembly. And he even had some thoughts about the gospel which seemed to be not in line with Scripture. The other elders discerned this also and spent many hours in late night meetings and long email discourses attempting to respectfully deal with the elders' attitudes and his demands. Eventually in frustration, he gave up his position as an elder for a few weeks. He then attempted to regain that role and the church elders did not allow him to do so which led to greater dispute and division. After a few more weeks in which the condition worsened, this ultimately ended in his being disciplined and removed from the church. And this was done for two reasons. One was to prevent the upsetting and subversion of families and individuals in the church fellowship. Secondly, it was in hope that this man would humbly repent and be restored to fellowship within the church. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And this man took two other families with him. Those two households were subverted, upset, and completely disrupted. And have gone through much, much difficulty. They eventually left that man as well. And it might have been easy to look back years later. Decades later, really. And wonder if it was really that serious or if the church had done the right thing. But in this man's case, he went on to spread division in church after church throughout the Midwest. In at least five churches that we know of during the next 20 years. We are very thankful for the Lord's protection and leading. But it was a very, very difficult battle. We must be attentive to the Word of God. We must be in prayer for each other. We must encourage each other in what is right. Now what would lead men to cause this kind of destruction? Well in Crete, the reason is very simple. It was for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, admittedly, power, perversion, self-righteousness, pride, these can be reasons that motivate other rebels to subvert families and to gain control. But in Crete, the reason was clear to Paul. It was shameful, sordid, filthy greed. And here Paul reminds Titus of the kind of people he is working with. Verse 12, he, to drive home the point, he quotes one of the heroes of wisdom from Crete's history. Paul implements his strategy instead of simply giving his own critique. And here's why I think he does so. During our recent visit to Lebanon... Pastor Richard Sadaka of Lebanese himself often explained to us some of the deep social and political struggles of his home country. It is very difficult there. And it has been hard for him to watch over the decades his country go from one time very wealthy, very successful, to now being totally bankrupt, morally bankrupt, and without any kind of hope in the future. In the midst of his often colorful insights, he would frequently give honest, humorous, and very critical depictions 
of his fellow countrymen. It was sometimes humorous to hear him talk, but it also made a very truthful statement about the reality of the problem. But if I were to say the same things, the Lebanese would be offended, and they would doubt my sincerity, and they would question my authority to give such an evaluation as they rightly should. Americans and Europeans would accuse me of being overly critical and not knowing what I was talking about, that I don't know what it's like to live in their shoes. They would be right. That is why Paul writes, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. We know a little bit about who this prophet probably was. It appears to be a man by the name of Epimenides. He was a 6th century B.C. Cretan poet. He himself was a native of Crete from the city of Gnosis. Hendrickson indicates that Epimenides was regarded as one of the seven wise men of the ancient world. He goes on to say here that the character of the Cretans displayed itself so clearly that the confirmation of Epimenides and his severe judgment comes from every direction and is not limited to a single century. Paul could have used a fellow by the name of Polybius a 2nd century B.C. Greek historian. He said this about the Cretans, So much, in fact, do love of shameful profit and greed prevail among them that among all men, Cretans are the only one in whose estimation no profit is ever disgraceful. Which is why, if we look back at the previous verse, that some of these men were being these subversive men because of shameful profit. They were not afraid to do that. Cicero, a first century Roman philosopher. Indeed, men's moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery to be honorable. This was a bad crew. From Epimenides' own pen, he writes, Cretans are always liars. Now this may have stemmed from the fact that the Cretans claimed that the god Zeus was actually buried and had a tomb on their island, which would have been impossible considering who Zeus was supposed to be. But they were liars to the first degree. In fact, Cretans lied so much that the Greek word kritsizo was used to describe the act of lying. Lying was named after their country. They were also evil beasts, and that's a two-word description. The first word meaning depraved or worthless. The second meaning a dangerous animal. And then they were lazy gluttons. The word lazy means useless. It can even mean unemployed. And the word glutton here actually means stomach. And it was used most of the time in Scripture to, to describe women who were with child. These guys were lazy, useless, dangerous people. And Paul affirms this claim and he simply writes, This testimony is true. I devoted this lengthy description of the Cretan people in order to highlight, or better yet, low light, the enormous opposition that Titus faced. He is trying to preach the gospel, disciple men and women, and found churches, established churches, deep in enemy territory. Richard Phillips depicts our brother Paul as he counsels Titus, and he says, Instead of shunning notoriously sinful places and people, Paul brought the gospel directly to this dishonest, brutish island. Calvin wrote, 
It was truly a wonderful purpose of God that He called a nation so depraved and so infamous on account of its vices to be among the first who should partake of the gospel. In that country so corrupt, as if in the midst of hell, the church of Christ had held a position and did not cease to be extended. Right in the heart of the greatest battle zone is where Paul, Titus, Timothy would go. In such a place of vicious opposition and brutal vice, Titus' response was to be equally strong. Look what he is told to do. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them severely. It means in a manner that cuts. Titus, you will have to speak directly and strongly. It will need to pierce the heart. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when I present, so that when present, I need not use severity, sharpness. Paul was ready to use it if necessary, but he didn't start there. But in some conditions, it had to be hard, hard, sharp news. This specific situation, this group of rebels, rebels required a severe message. But that message, however sharp it may have been, was not nearly as sharp as the catastrophe that awaits if they did not respond. Jesus' half-brother Jude gave this advice. He said, On some have compassion, making a distinction. And you're going to have to think this through and decide. But on others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Sometimes it will take coaxing and opening their scriptures up and, and gently leading them down a path. Other time, you're going to have to use this thing like a sword. And like the scriptures say, it's a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. But you'll have to use a distinction and you'll have to be wise. And, and don't start there. But in some cases, that's where it has to be. And the goal of the severe response, the sharp answer, was that they may be sound in the faith. It wasn't to crush them. It wasn't to destroy them. It was necessary to bring them to soundness of faith. The word sound means good, healthy, to have the right kind of faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good or sound doctrine. Titus chapter 2, we will come to that soon. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. You see, a sound faith that is Titus's target with this response would not do the following. In verse 14, it would not give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Vain traditions and demands of men. You see, this is written at a time when the church really is quite young. Now, 2,000 years later, we have all sorts of aberrations from what is a true sound faith of what the original doctrines were that Jesus, Paul, Peter espoused and taught us in the Word of God. Vain traditions and demands of men, I tell you, are a far greater threat to the truth of the gospel, healthy churches, 
and thriving believers than atheism or persecution. That may seem odd to you. Persecution, however, almost always builds the faith and character of Christ's people. But false doctrine and tradition are the termites that infect the substructure of a once beautifully constructed and foundationally strong church. It has happened all over our land. Like termites gradually eating away at the wooden studs, the rafters, the doorways, the floors. Eventually, not immediately, but over time, weakens. For a local church, it either collapses or else looks nothing like the original structure. Here is a quick list of Bible warnings concerning this danger. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Fear. Conduct ourselves throughout our time here in fear. Titus 1 verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and ex exercise yourself toward godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And they will be turned aside to fables. And then in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul exposes the impact of this kind of unbiblical tradition and vain philosophies, legalism, and rebellion. The impact that these things have upon those that enslaves. He goes on to say in verse 14, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. The context of this statement from Paul seems to point to the issues of legalism and tradition. The necessity of not eating certain types of food to be pure before God. And if not specifically that, and then it's some type of required practice or work that establishes purity before God. But it is not the blood of Jesus shed for us to cleanse us from sin which makes us pure. The gospel is really quite simple. Last night we spent a few hours speaking on this very topic. Today, the traditions are different perhaps than they were in those days. But if you talk with somebody from something such as Islam or a very devout Catholic or someone from Mormonism or these different groups that claim to know Christ, the Islam will even know who Christ is. But for them to be able to enter into paradise, they will require or they will rely on God's mercy, but then they will also pay on the day of judgment for the sins that they have committed. 
I'll just be very direct on this because it is important. I spent much time talking with two different groups last night who were convinced that purgatory was so absolutely necessary in order for anyone to ever reach heaven. Yes, Jesus Christ forgives our sin, but you must pay or you must be made perfect or you must be purified through the sufferings and the difficulties of time in purgatory. We can go down the list to all different aberrations. But that's what Paul was facing in a different time with a different message. But it is a tradition that is a perversion of the true gospel. The true gospel, brothers, it defies who we are. We want to be able to do something to attain this or to assure it. While the only one who could have is the Son of God Himself. Jesus Christ who died on that cross, took our sins upon Himself, endured the wrath that was due us, our sins were removed and completely paid for. Forever. Often it said, well what about the sins tomorrow? They are paid for. What happens if I sin tomorrow? It is paid for. It doesn't make the sin right. The question was asked Paul. Well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Those people realized what Paul was saying in the gospel and said, may it never be. How should we who died to sin live it any longer? Or do you not know that we who were baptized into His death were also baptized into His life? We are to serve Christ. We are to honor Him with gracious, thankful, loving hearts because He is the Savior. Not because it will assure us any kind of a place in heaven or assure us any kind of status before God. His grace is what we needed to begin with. His grace is what we need today. His grace is what we need tomorrow. Paul says something here. He says to the pure, those who have trusted in Christ alone, no traditions, no philosophies, none of their own will or works or their own suffering makes them pure. It is Christ alone. These pure ones are made pure by Christ. Their pursuits and purposes are then made pure as they walk with Him. Hendrickson wrote this. He said, Pure men are those who have been cleansed from their guilt by the blood of Christ. We have pure men and women sitting in this congregation because they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Having been regenerated, he goes on to say, by the Holy Spirit and are being constantly cleansed by that same Spirit from the pollution of their sins. But to those who are unbelieving, Paul goes on to say, to those who are unbelieving in the gospel of Christ, they remain defied, excuse me, defiled, polluted, and stained by their sin. Consequently, everything they do, say, or think is defiled and polluted by sin. Haggai, the Old Testament prophet, gave this picture of holiness. And this, I believe, is a parallel to Paul's declaration of purity here. Old Testament. Haggai wrote, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of those, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. 
Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offered there is unclean. A man who is not purified by Christ does nothing that is pure, does nothing that is clean. And I know we, we recoil at that. We see people doing things that we think that are good, that are, that are good for humanity and for the community. And, and they are in that way. But they are not pure. They are not undefiled. Let me go on. Proverbs 15 verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. The rebel who defies the gospel of Christ's grace. Insisting upon works and formulas and deeds of the flesh. In verse 16 says is also a hypocrite. They profess to know God. But in works they Deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Ezekiel in chapter 33 wrote this So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. It's the ugly spectacle, the ugly spectacle of profession, what you say. In conflict with practice. Profession versus practice. What you do. And we know the example all too well. I have been that example all too often. Hypocrisy is one of the most despised traits that a man can wear. A father before his son. Who proclaims this and that and teaches. And his son watches and sees nothing of that at home. A boss before his employees who claims to run a Christian company. And then behind the scenes operates in very unchristian practices. Teammates on a sports team. Who can quote a verse and wear a patch that speaks about I can do all things through Christ. And then leads a very, very decadent rebellious life against God in secret. That the other teammates know. Preacher before the assembly. Preaching these things. Saying these things. And then going home and speaking rudely to his wife. Or impatiently to his children. We hate hypocrisy. No one likes hypocrisy. We despise it. But I want to read to you a very penetrating illustration of hypocrisy. Given by Paul. And it exposes Someone that you know and love. That I know and love in hypocrisy. One of, one of our favorite characters in scripture. Galatians chapter 2. When, now when Peter had come to Antioch. I withstood him to his face. Because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James. He would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. You get the picture? Here are these guys of the circumcision again. They've come down and now instead of being like a Paul who defied them and stood in place and received stoning from them, Peter runs and hides. And he will not carry on his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul goes on and says, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Do you see what hypocrisy does? It wasn't just Peter. It said the rest of the Jews there. It said even Barnabas was swept up in this. 
It is a disease that, that goes from one person to the next quite quickly, very easily. And here goes Paul. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And I'm sure that cut. It was a sharp word. It was a severe word. But it was a necessary word. And God used it. And Peter repented. And we don't know all the steps that it took there. But we see Peter then writing in a, in a position of a pastor, of a humble man, laying his life down for Christ. Professing to know God but denying Him in your living causes the following. And we close with this. It's hypocrisy in 3D. Detestable to God. Disobedient and disqualified for every good work. Detestable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. And that's where I was going before when I say every good work. Disqualified. Romans 8 verse 7. Through eight. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't matter if you start an orphanage and a hospital, or, or an outreach to this or to that. If you are not doing that in the name of Christ, you are not pleasing God. It may help many. And I'm not saying that we go out and, and we criticize all of the good things humanitarily that people are doing? No. But I am saying, as Christians, as people before God, if we are not doing it in the Spirit of Christ, then before God it cannot please Him. In fact, Paul has said, it will be defiled. It will be impure. There is no good work possible for a person who does not believe in Christ. By their very unbelief, they make all they do, say or touch, Filthy and polluted before God. For any good work done without doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is a hill of dung. In the presence of our pure and holy God, it stinks and is detestable. Let me read what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish or as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What did Paul call dung and rubbish? He was perhaps one of the highest regarded, if not the very pinnacle of the Pharisees in his day. He was a teacher of teachers. He did good things. But he found them to be rubbish because they were not done for the glory of Jesus Christ. Richard Phillips wrote this very important warning. Whenever works are placed ahead of or in the place of in Christ, the result is not merely a variation on the Christian theme, but a, not a denial of Christ altogether.
Spurgeon wrote, When the unbeliever somehow or other keeps his garments clean as before his fellow men, yet as before his God, what is he? He is one who has cast off all obligations to his maker, who denies all responsibilities to his king, who receives bounties from Jehovah's hands, but is not grateful and will not even acknowledge that the mercies come from those hands at all. This is a defilement, there which is even greater than any form of defilement which becomes perceptible by men as between themselves. Defilement before God. Who is the rebel? He or she who believes that anything or any practice or tradition or sacrament or prayer or tear or church or friend or anything else other than the faith in Christ alone brings them into relationship with the living God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Titus 3. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but because of His own mercy, He saved us. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by faith, by grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans 5. For when we were still without strength, utterly, completely without strength, Christ died for us. For scarcely will a righteous man die, will one die for a righteous man. But in some cases, that may happen. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is the grace of God that we must live, that we must proclaim, that we must hang everything we do upon. And brothers and sisters, it is so easy to drift away from that. May we be so committed to the glory of Christ that we check every motive and everything that we do by the Word of God and do it for His glory. Let us pray. And this prayer comes from Paul in Philippians chapter 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen.